Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Cosmic Circle, the official podcast of thecosmiccircus.com. Today, we have a very spectacular, superior, amazing Spider-Man No Way Home pregame episode. My name is Vin, and joining me for today's roundtable discussion are Alex, Isla, and Tucker. Howdy, I'm Alex. I'm a writer for the site, and I am being forced here against my will, otherwise the multiverse will break. <laughs> Hi, I'm Isla. I'm a writer for the site, and they let me back here, so I'm here. Uh, hi, I'm Tucker. Um, Vin dragged me here, and um, I will do my best not to waste your time. These people are not being held in my basement against their will. There's no violence being threatened. We're all <laughs> loving friends and family. Okay, before we get started, I want to thank all of our supporters on Patreon. If you're not a patron yet, please consider signing up today for access to our Discord and a fantastic family of fellow fans. In fact, I recently just posted some very special artwork of the Spider-Man villains, so be sure to sign up on Patreon if you want to check that out. It's a Cosmic Circus exclusive. Have you guys seen this? Oh, God. Those are just special. This is, this is high art, guys. This is a Cosmic Circle exclusive. You will find this oh, nowhere yeah. else except for Honor Patreon. <laughs> okay, now before getting into the Spider-Man movies themselves, Tucker, can you start us off? What was your journey to Spider-Man? Okay, when you brought this to me, I uh, felt conflicted. I feel like my answer is a little cliche. I was born in 2002. I'm only 19 years old. So obviously my first introduction to Spider-Man was the Sam Raimi Spider-Man 2. My Literally the earliest memory in my life is the day that my parents bought Spider-Man 2 on DVD for me. Those movies are really special. We'll talk about it, obviously. But I was never really the kid to... I wish I did. Now I do. Looking back, I wish I had watched some of those animated shows. But I never did. I was just always a pure-hearted Sam Raimi Spider-Man fan. When you were a kid, how many times would you re-watch the DVD? <laughs> um at least at least okay being serious i almost said a million as a joke but being serious i probably have watched these movies 30 40 times each even just over the last month i got them on blu-ray recently to prepare for no way home and just over the last month alone every night before bed i would turn on spider-man one and i would just watch it while i'm going to bed or then spider-man two and like it got so bad where i wore myself out and I was going to watch them in preparation for the podcast. And by the time I got here, I was tired of watching them. So I didn't really get to it. <laughs> so, yeah. Isla, what about you? So I'm older than than our, our friend here, uh, Tucker. <laughs> so um, I remember seeing the movie, the Spider-Man 1 movie in theaters. And, you know, that was my first experience. And I, I'll talk about that a little bit later. But it was an event back then. It was 2002. I was in high school, again, because I'm older than, than Tucker. <laughs> um, and, it, you know, you had the sense of being that you were in this moment, that this was special. And, you know, from then on, I was just, you know, obsessed and became a huge fan of the, the franchise. I love that. Alex? I guess that makes me the middle child because I'm not as old as I was. <laughs> but I am a little bit older than Tucker. The first memory I think I had was watching Spider-Man 1 on VHS. And, and the funny thing was at the time, like my version had like Spanish subtitles in yellow. So that yeah. was also kind of like dope. So we were like watching, I, I remember just watching that. And then as a kid watching Spider-Man 2 in theaters, and, and, and I grew up, unlike some people, <clears throat> Tucker, I grew up also with the animated show. <laughs> so 
it has essentially progressed to the point where I also cosplay Spider-Man. So it is pretty much, it would just be an oversimplification to say that Spider-Man is a very big part of my life <laughs> since my childhood. That's beautiful. I'll be honest, I, I grew up a DC kid. Uh, Superman the movie, watched it all the time. The Batman movies, watch them all the time. The animated series, watch them all the time. For me, I think, I, I think Spider-Man 2002 was my first like Marvel thing ever, really. And I was, I was six. And that was the perfect age to just get obsessed with it. Oh yeah. Um, I remember I remember I went to a, a zoo in DC at the time. And I remember at the zoo, there was just this guy in a Spider-Man costume. And I it, I just loved it. I was like, that is the, that is Spider-Man. He's at my zoo. <laughs> and I remember going to we had a KB Toys, like from Hawkeye. I remember going to KB Toys and I got Spider-Man action figures. I got the Green Goblin action figures. He had the little glider. You could take off his helmet, <laughs> you know. Oh man, I I loved that first Spider-Man movie. And for this podcast, you know, I rewatched all of them. It was my first time watching the Raimi movies and the amazing movies pretty much since they, I mean, all the movies. I think it was my first time rewatching them since they came out. Spider-Man 1, I think is still my favorite of all of these movies. Just wow. everything about it. I, I just love it so, so, so much. One thing um, we might talk about later, I also love that Raimi, it felt like he was trying to recreate the like good Boy Scout of Christopher Reeve, but for a modern interpretation. I don't yeah. know. I just, I don't know if it's true to Spider-Man comics, but it was true for me. I loved it. Yeah. Um, so before we, I get too much into it, Isla, I want <laughs> you to tell me, what do you think about Spider-Man 1? Tell me about it. Well, before you mention that, I just want to say I'm so happy that you mentioned KB Toys, because if you were a child of the 90s, you know, that was where you went. You would get wrestling figures, you would get other action figures. So that, you know, warms my heart. And seeing that in Hawkeye was awesome. So I said earlier that going to see Spider-Man 1 in theaters in 2002 was an experience. And it was. I think it was like a $100 million box office. And even as you were there, like, it just felt really cool being a part of it. Like, the theater was reactive. We were coming off uh, a couple of years of having seen X-Men and, you know, summer blockbusters were still just this cool thing. And it, it was just amazing seeing it in theaters and hearing the soundtrack, uh, Danny Elfman. It just, I can't even begin to like explain the moment of being there. It was just, it was phenomenal. I still have my ticket stub 20 years later. So I remember even KB Toys, I got my Batmobile there because I was a DC kid. I didn't even see <laughs> X-Men. Spider-Man was my first Marvel ever. Ever. Uh, Alex, what about you? To me, Spider-Man 1, out of all of them, like personally, I can, and, and we're going to get to this later on, and I can say objectively that like Spider-Man 2 really is like the film that pretty much establishes comic book films as like superhero comic book films as a very big genre. But Spider-Man 1 for me continues to be my favorite, not only because of like Dan Elfman and Toby Maguire's interpretation and like Sam Raimi's style and, and all of that. But to me, there's also like the, I don't know if anyone else sees this, but I know a lot of people are excited because there's the chance of seeing Toby Maguire. But for me, I'm more excited than anything just to see William Dafoe return as Green Goblin because that was such an incredible interpretation of a villain. 
to this day, as a kid watching Green Goblin, I was so terrified and mortified of the character and just his iconic laugh. And being able to see that nowadays, like like when I saw the trailer for the first time and I heard his laugh and the pumpkin bomb, I was just like, oh my God, I've been transported to 2003 watching the VHS and I have freaking chills up my spine. So I'm just, I, I, I love that film so much. Tucker? Well, I'm glad Ayla and Alex brought this up because if I had two things to say about my love for Sam Raimi Spider-Man movies and specifically Spider-Man 1, it would be Willem Dafoe and Danny Elfman because nothing makes me tear up or get goosebumps or just elevate like listening to the score for the Spider-Man films in the early 2000s and nothing makes me have nightmares like Willem Dafoe's portrayal of Norman Osborn. One time when I was, I don't even know, probably like four or five, I went to a friend's house and I had a nightmare that uh, Willem Dafoe's Green Goblin was outside the window and I went home that night because I was so terrified. I couldn't handle it. It's just, it's insane. Even though the first movie isn't my favorite in the franchise, they definitely tapped into something that had not been had not been tapped into probably ever I mean if I had to compare I did write down in my notes if I had to compare I would say that these movies remind me a lot about Tim Burton Batman movies like they're kind of timeless and the villains are really iconic and there's just I feel like there's a lot of similarities there but the score is just I I, I can't and I hate it because I kind of don't really like Danny Elfman I think he's kind of got an attitude I think he's got a chip <laughs> on his shoulder but, nowadays nowadays maybe yes but I I that score is just insane like I literally can't hear it without getting goosebumps or like it's it's incredible two things I think um on that so the music makes the movie right and it makes the movie for any movie like Star Wars isn't Star Wars without the soundtrack Spider-Man so much emotion is is tied up with that like you said and about about the Green Goblin you know there's been a lot of criticism about his suit saying that it was kind of cheesy whatever you think about the suit he was still creepy as all get out and he's like an amazing villain He's, you know, I think the definitive goblin. Yeah. And just one thing I want to add, I can just imagine, like, adding to Tucker's dream. I'm sure he was, like, dreaming the green goblin outside his window because he was thinking about that one scene where he, oh, yeah. popped, like, where he explodes Aunt May's window yeah. <laughs> they're praying. So he was oh, yeah. just waiting for Tucker to start praying just it so was, he could come in and go, finish it. It was awful. I'm being so serious. That's like a defining moment in my life was that night and that nightmare. It's hilarious. For me, there's so much I love about this movie. I'm going to go actually in detail about the opening credits in just a second. Like just the opening credits, I'm going to gush about. Uh, before I do that, I have some screenshots here. Um, just <laughs> because I think this movie does more with the visuals. I think all the Raimi movies have great visuals, but this one in particular, I think just got really, really special and really inventive. So there's the sequence where like the goblin, it's I think like a surreal dream sequence or something. And there's this really trippy, it's like double goblin exposure where there's like a close-up of the goblin and the goblin standing on a rooftop. No, it's um, worse than I, that. It's it's worse than that. It's literally a transition. It has nothing to do with anything. If you watch the movie, it's so out of place. It's a jump scare in the middle of nothing. And that is what gave me the nightmare. I swear to God. <laughs> Just throw back to like the fight. Throw back to when, when Spidey's saving the old lady and then he just turns around and you hear the scream. 
yeah 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 oh man i i love this movie um there's the one where where you see spider-man and he has his two eyes and they're reflecting the the bus of the the kids and mj falling can i add to that like in that screenshot you're posting there's this one thing I've noticed mainly with each Spider-Man and that's that each Spider-Man has like their own setting and color. Like, have you ever noticed that all of the Raimi films, like Spider-Man, most of the time, Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man is always with like either the sunset or some sort of yellow and orange lighting. Yeah. While, yeah. Taz, while the Amazing Spider-Man is always like in blue. And yeah. that's something I love about the imagery because that's just been constant throughout all of those franchises. Yeah. Would you say the, the home films have a color? The, the home films don't seem to have a particular color scheme. More, they're a combination of both. I've noticed that the Homecoming films are sometimes more saturated than the other two franchises. But I've been noticing from time to time there's like blends of both. Sometimes like in the Homecoming films, you'll see some sort of yellow lighting. For example, when he's talking to Tony Stark after the, the, the boat incident. And there's like that sunset and there's that yellow lighting, but then there's also like some sort of blue setting whenever he's in Far From Home. So there's a combination of two whenever there's Tom Spider-Man involved. That's so great. You know, I, I think that's something I, it was always in my head, but I never really wrote that down. That's so, that's so great, Alex. Isla, do you want to say something? Yeah, I think the lighting in the, the Spider-Man, the Raimi films actually really, and particularly in, in like the fight and the action scenes, really give it um, give it a sense of camp. Like it's a throwback back to the old Batman films. It, it's it's definitely different stylistically than most of the things you've seen as as superhero films and, and this genre has evolved. Yeah, uh, Tucker mentioned this before. So like I, I mentioned, I felt it had the Christopher Reeve, like a good Boy Scout, good job, kids, stay in school. But I, I think also it adds some of the I don't know larger than life realism or the I don't even know how to describe it because it's not gritty like like the burden films are gritty yeah I've I what I told you uh in DMs the other day was that I felt like especially in comparison to the web movies that this Raimi films have like a fairy tale quality about them Mm -hmm. in that Aunt May is almost like a mythological figure who comes in just in time to deliver a poem or whatever that will get Spider-Man back on his feet and the villains are larger than life and do supernatural things that no one would expect and I think that's very in line with the uh, Reeve films is that like it's it is larger than life I mean he he's an icon like Spider-Man means more and I think that's why those scenes where he goes to Aunt May's house in the second film and she's moving and he talks to the kid and the kid goes do you think Spider-Man will ever come back those moments mean so much more than almost any other film like I I think all films like you'd be hard-pressed to find a moment that's more concentrated and emotional than just a simple line like that and I think that heavy weight that the Raimi films bring is very unique to these movies yes you know I think I, I told you I love the DC films but I I honestly think especially after this last rewatch I don't know if if there's any I don't know if there's any superhero movies that really have the powerful emotions that these Raimi films as particularly particularly Spider-Man 1 and I think the last hour of Spider-Man 2 I think those are so powerful even Spider-Man 3 had some really emotional moments for me and, uh, you know, I think the amazing films got a little bit of that. I, I don't know if the homecoming films have any of it. And I don't know where I could find that in 
other movies maybe a little bit in like superman the movie but i i would be hard pressed you know yeah. i think the, these raimi films especially especially this first one for me oh god it's so beautiful and the funeral scene at the end and just the music and the emotions my god i can't even use words um yeah i, I have one more image i'm showing you guys we can we can post these in the show notes uh for our listeners just like the superposition of after after goblin dies and Spider-Man's in the wreckage and his suit is all broken up so you can see his face and you can see his emotions. And then it's the superposition. It's, it's a transition. You see him just sitting there like mourning a bit. And then you see the, the, the ghost of the goblin, you know, just artistry like that. I feel it's just missing from anywhere you look. I, I don't even know. Forget superhero movies. Movies. Yeah. Just shots like, oh my God, I just... This is a photograph. This is <laughs> damn. I I love this movie, man. I'm yeah. so sad. I've barely rewatched this in my life. I love this movie. <laughs> okay, okay. I think that is more than good on that. Um, I I have a so much I want to say about just the opening credits. So I might just throw that in an article and just share it with the world. <laughs> um. So let let's move on. We got Spider Man two in two thousand four. Tucker, were you even alive? Where were you? At yes, <laughs> I was alive. All right. Um. <laughs> Well, I I would definitely go to say that Spider-Man 2 is my favorite of the Raimi movies by, by far. I think that, and I'm sure there are, we will have plenty of time to talk about this later, but I think that 3 and 1 fight each other a little bit. As much as I love 1 and as much as I love 3 for different reasons, I think 2 has always stood out. I think that Otto Octavius is probably the most interesting character in the Raimi films. I think the one scene alone where Peter and Otto are just sitting at a table and they're just kind of having a chat about poems yeah. and love and who who are you dating right now? Oh, it's complicated. And he says, oh, well, when isn't it? Like, who would know is what he says, I think. It's just scenes like that are so perfect to me because... And I, I hate to say this, but I'm going to say it. I don't think that you would ever find a scene like that in an MCU film, not one as perfectly written. Like it's so it's like a it's like a two minute scene. I feel like it's not long at all, but with perfect efficiency. And I think David Kep wrote it and they just address so much. They add a ton of depth to Otto and they establish his entire relationship with his wife in that short little scene, which adds impact to what happens to her later on. Like just that that scene alone is what encapsulates my love for this movie is it's just perfect love it Isla the relationship with you know Otto and Peter in this movie is is so much different than the relationship between Peter and and the Green Goblin in the previous movie right Otto is is this heroic figure to him he's this guy that Peter looks up to and he you know he he creates this thing he's trying to do this thing for the good of mankind you know, which there are some parallels there to Spider-Man. It ultimately, you know, causes him to go insane. So it's, it's a really interesting, you know, relationship to explore between the two of them. And Doc Ock isn't a bad guy. He's just gone a little bit insane from the mechanical arms and AI. He, he's still redeemable. And that makes him a very interesting villain. Yeah. Isla, did you see the recent like villains featurette from No Way Home? I did not. I have to watch that still. So in that, it, it has Jamie Foxx, Alfred Molina, and Willem Dafoe, and they're talking about the characters. I, you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think Alfred was saying something like, the villains themselves are like characters, and they're just, mistakes happen to them, and they just, that is just the arc of their character. Just like an accident happens to Spider-Man to make him Spider-Man, an accident happens to Marvel villains to make them Marvel villains. Yeah. It's not, it's not like they're necessarily sinister people to begin with. 
Alex, would you say the same? I would. To me, like the the one I'm gonna steal this from like from your point of view, but I don't recall a movie having opening credits far more interesting than Spider-Man Two oh, that yeah. had the Alex Ross art. Oh yeah, that was yeah that that was that was just like an incredible point that that I recall from those films, and I agree with what Tucker and Isla are saying, like. Objectively, I can say Spider-Man Two is the best of the of the three Raimi films for Spider-Man. Not only in the sense of the character development for the villain, but there's also like the character development for Toby. Because in that film, like Toby kind of struggles with being Spider-Man, and he also like loses his powers for a bit, and he has like this. We see the whole split identity crisis that's usual in the comics, and then the point of him giving up being Spider-Man before coming back, and it makes him more relatable to audiences, I think, in that second movie than in the first one. Because in the first one, it's about this nerdy kid getting his powers. In this second one, we kind of see him lowered down to a more human version of it, and re- and we realize that Spider-Man isn't just this big iconic superhero; he's also a human underneath the suit and underneath the mask and it's something that i really resonated with spider-man 2 with more than any of the spider-man films in general really so that's what i love about spider-man 2 you mentioned spider-man 2 and you know his loss of powers as kind of being this defining thing there are some parallels there too with far from home and losing the suit you know what is spider-man without his powers what is what is the mcu spider-man without a suit and exploring that and that's kind of interesting how they handle it differently for me i don't know if tucker put this idea in my head or if the idea came naturally but when i was watching spider-man 2 i was chatting with tucker a bit because because we're bros and i thought (laughs) i don't know i i think the first hour is really tough on peter it's like harry hates him mj starts to hate him aunt may hates him when he tells her about how uncle ben died and like nobody is in his corner and everything's turned against him even his mentor doc ock has gone insane and then you you have this moment where he starts coming back and then everything comes back and then the last hour of the movie is rock solid I, I think that for me I, I suppose is, is the best hour maybe of all Spider-Man though I, I think I don't like the first hour as much just because it's so tough on him I just find it hard to be enjoyable maybe <laughs> yeah um, so that's why I still maybe that's why I still hold Spider-Man 1 just from start to finish that movie just perfect to me and I, I think Spider-Man 2 it, it, it's a bit tougher in the first hour and then the second hour it, it's it's like a big rock concert but the I don't know. The, the balance is a little off. Well, even as a kid, even as a kid, I preferred Spider-Man 1. The the way I see it, and I don't know how other people feel, but the way I see it is that Spider-Man, the original, is a movie about Spider-Man. It starts with Peter Parker being a dork. He becomes Spider-Man. And I feel like this movie is the same way in that you're in the shoes of Peter Parker throughout almost the entire movie. Every decision he makes, like, like you said, you use the words, uh, Harry hates him, which is true, but he hates Spider-Man. And for Peter, there's no difference in that. Even if Harry doesn't know it, everything that he says about Spider-Man, Peter is feeling it. And I love that. I love the way they do that. Like, I don't know, this movie, it's on another level. Yeah, I don't know if I've ever seen this talked about anywhere. Alex, can you see my screen? Do you see, have you, have you noticed this before, this shot? Let me see. 
so, not really. I've actually never okay. noticed the transition point because it's such a it's such one frame. That's actually yeah. kind of interesting, really. Yeah, yeah. So this is I'll I'll put this in the show notes for you guys. This is the scene at the very very end of the movie. It, you know, it's like the, the almost the post credit scene. It's where Harry is screaming at Norman in the mirror. So he picks up the dagger. He's looking at Norman, and it's one frame each. And these are twenty four frames a second. So this is one twenty fourth of a second each. There's six pictures. So the whole sequence is one fourth of a second. So first frame, Harry throws the knife. Second frame, it cuts to Norman. Third frame. It is a Norman Harry transition because it's it's the mirror. So you're looking at the mirror at Norman. It transitions to Harry, and their faces are superimposed. So it's a weird blend of them. Fourth frame, it's Harry for one frame only, just Harry. Then it goes back to Norman, uh, a repeat of the early one. And then the sixth frame is the glass shattering. The whole thing is one fourth of a second. Because I was watching it, and I said something looks funny. So then I went frame by frame, and it blew my mind. So I'll, I'll put the frame by frames in the show notes. I'll also put a little link of the, the actual video clip so you guys can try to watch it and see if you can notice it yourself. Because I think just the detail in that, these are one twenty-fourth of a second each. I just watched it. Uh, you can't. You can't see it. <laughs> like, unless you really break it down, it's so hard to see. It's perfectly done. I mean, that scene is really great. I love the emotion there. I love the relationship that uh, Norman and Harry have had through the last two movies. You haven't really touched on it, but I love the way that Norman kind of despises Harry for who mm -hmm. he is. And in turn, Harry kind of... I. I get the sense that Harry like want, just wants a dad <laughs> and Norman is like a businessman who doesn't have time for his private school dropout son who can't maintain grades or whatever and like the jealousy that Harry feels with Norman and Peter like the relationship that Norman and Peter have like I feel like that kind of informs how Harry sees Peter throughout the next two movies like yeah it's a really great scene I, I was really blown away when you pointed that out. Mm -hmm. The thing that causes me a bump with, you know, the relationship between Norman and Harry is, you know, all of what you mentioned. Would Harry really, you know, jump into avenging him if this relationship with his father is so complicated? Because it seems like he would, he'd be more likely to avenge him and want to avenge him if he had a much closer father-son relationship. And that's, or, or is this, you know, just the, you know, his last attempt at trying to get his father's approval? So the, um, yeah. that's always kind of been a little off for me. Yeah, the way that I kind of see it, and you, I think they touch on it a little bit in the third movie. I don't, I don't want to speak confidently on that because I don't remember. But in the third movie, whenever Peter, uh, whenever he's like a douche and has the weird hair, <laughs> um, whenever he approaches Harry in the penthouse, all Harry talks about is how, actually, I'm not even sure it's that scene. At some point, he talks about how Peter stole MJ and how uh, he killed his dad and all that stuff. And I feel like, and I wish they touched on this more because i'll agree with you that i don't think it's very well done i don't think the harry peter relationship is super well done but i think that it was everything i mean peter harry lost it harry, harry had a bad relationship with his dad found finds out his dad is a maniac finds out his dad was killed by spider-man the person that everyone in the city iconizes 
and then he finds out that his best friend was actually the one who killed his uh, dad and his best friend stole his girlfriend and his best friend did all this stuff like I wish they did a better job building that up and kind of establishing that it was a long road to get to where we are but instead every time they fight Harry's just like you killed my dad and he's like no I didn't and then Bernard comes in at the end of the third one and is like actually your dad killed himself and then it's kind of tied up with a nice little bow but I definitely agree that it's not as well done as it could have been What's funny is um, I, I actually cheated. I didn't watch Spider-Man 3 because I was- Oh no. <laughs> so, so I watched the Spider-Man 3 editor's cut, which is supposedly better. I don't know. But in that one, Bernard doesn't tell him. And that one, it, it's, it's like implied that Harry figured it out himself. Really? Um, hmm. Yeah, I, I think to give Harry agency or something. I don't know. I would have to watch the two cuts side by side maybe to, to I'll need to like better. Yeah. yeah. I need to, I'll need to go watch that. But yeah, go ahead, Ayla. In Spider-Man 3, that definitely, you know, throws you after watching Harry basically destroy himself and suddenly, oh, but wait, you know, your dad died by his own hand. That's kind of, you know, that's one of many things in that movie that I'm sure we'll we'll get to. Yeah. Another thing that kind of bugs me about Harry and Peter is that so Peter Parker is essentially a Boy Scout. You guys touched on it, you know, in the first movie. He doesn't he's a good guy, but Harry, you know, seems a little bit slimy. He isn't redeeming just as a character. He's not likable. So, you know, it's always kind of struck me as odd that Harry and Peter would be best friends. And I don't think that friendship is handled very well. And, you know, the Raimi Spider-Man movies or the Amazing Spider-Man, where he just kind of suddenly pops up, oh, we're old friends. Yeah. It's a missed opportunity. Yeah. Adding to the slimy thing, adding to the note of sliminess that uh, Ayla (laughs) mentions, we have to, it it has to be determined whether or not that's just Harry as a character or if that's James Franco, but that will be determined (laughs) on another one. Yeah, I I think both versions of Harry, from from Raimi, from Webb, both are equally slimy. To Isla's point, I think, and both of those versions, I can see how he started out as a kid and how he might have seemed like just a normal, friendly kid who, who wanted to get away from his rich dad and maybe just be a normal kid. He becomes friends with Peter. And then he grows up and he twists into like this slimy uh, two-face kind of, because he has to be one face with Peter, one face with his dad. So with both of those Harrys, I can see in the performances, because I, I thought both did a very good job with their roles. I thought both Harrys, I can see how he used to be one way with Peter. And now he's turned into this smarmy, slimy two-faced Harry. Yeah. Alex, what were you saying? Uh, no, we were, I think we we're about to talk about Spider-Man 3, aren't we? Uh, <laughs> we are oh, talking about Spider-Man oh 3. Oh boy, yeah. all right. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Uh, <clears throat> Lizzie, if you're hearing this and you can edit it, do me a favor, play Funky Soul right. <laughs> <laughs> there it is. All right, Spider-Man 3, right, let's go. All right, let's talk about it. Write this on my tombstone. Raimi fans, if you somehow ever get to listen to this, I'm sorry. Uh, Spider-Man 3 is an example of what happens when studios get too much power over a filmmaker. Now, that is the only way I can properly say this next line, Spider-Man 3 is the worst out of all of the Raimi films. Not saying it's bad, just compared to the other two, it's questionable <laughs> there are things there are things about spider-man 3 i enjoy mainly somewhat a little bit of the arc peter goes through as a hero but that peter wasn't executed wrong 
it was just some of it was a little bit questionable in the way the symbiote was handled for the film because I know every like Sony really wanted Venom to be like the villain of this movie and, yeah. and it's just so much of the stuff that they tried to like jam in here pretty much messed up the way Sam Raimi wanted to tell the story which was like focusing on Harry and and his original vision so it was it was a little bit from what happened Sam Raimi handled it well I'll give it that something that I am impressed by especially from films in 2007 is how advanced Sam Raimi was in cinematography and visual effects the way that Sandman was executed in that film was absolutely phenomenal and not only like in the sequence when he's like trying to grab like the when he's in that giant puddle and he's experimented on and he becomes Sandman and he's trying to grab that pendant with his daughter and it just keeps slipping through his fingers like sand. That was just incredible cinematography and not even to mention the visual effect of when Toby and Sandman are fighting in the train in like the subway station and he jams his face through the train and I, I still to this day have no idea how the hell they did it but his face just half of it disappears and I'm just yeah. like wow yeah wow <laughs> the effects are I, I noticed this immediately there, there's a stark contrast the first two movies are so practical you know maybe occasional CGI you almost don't see it this third one I felt there was so much CGI everywhere I felt like nothing really looked real even even the the glider battle with, with Harry I thought that didn't look that real yeah but I didn't Sandman yeah. My God. And with, with the music, it's not even Elfman. It's, it's some, someone else. I think I don't, Christopher Yost or something. But the music was so perfect. And the effects are so good. Sandman was amazing. Um, Isla, what were you saying? No, I, so I, I also have a lot of feelings about Spidey 3, um, but it's, you know, not so much the, not so much the effects for me. I think that when you said, when Alex, when you said that it was like Spidey by studio, you're a hundred percent on, on target there. This is the Spider-Man 3 is Spidey by committee and it doesn't work. I think you lose what Peter Parker is because in this movie, he's unlikable even before, before the symbiote, you know, he doesn't, he's not the Boy Scout that he was yeah. in the previous movies, his, his goodness. We're not rooting for him. We don't yeah. like him even before Venom. Yeah. There's a really so there's one moment I'd love to talk about that I think kind of encapsulates this. And it's when he kisses Gwen. And that's like 100 percent that, you know, that ruins that version of, of Peter Parker in the movie for me. Because so in the other movies, there's a whole lot of kissing and cheating going on. But Spider-Man, Peter Parker himself never like never betrayed MJ. And yeah. here he does. And it's just, you know, for a stunt. And it's just so it feels so careless and so it it's so out of place. Yeah. Why do you guys think he did that? He, that wasn't even black suit Spider-Man. That was just no. Spider-Man. Right. Spider-Man. Yeah. Why, why I, do you think that he did it? I I will agree. There is a lot of characterization issues in this movie. I think that they start to lose a lot of the characters, and I think it's pretty funny that they kind of mess up. I say mess up. He's a bit of a. He, I mean, he's a bad boyfriend. Ultimately, that's the point of the movie is that he's a bad boyfriend, and they like. There's one scene in specific. It's after there's a bad review. After there's a bad review in MJ's mm-hmm. play, and MJ goes to Peter and Peter just immediately talks about Spider-Man. He's like, well, you can't let the critics get you down and you can't whatever. And MJ is just like begging him, like, just listen to me. I don't need you to try to fix my problem. Just like, let me vent to you and it there is a lot of that there is a lot of peter just kind of messing up and not being a good guy but ultimately i think i'm probably in the minority i think that spider-man 3 has my favorite emotional moment in this series 
right at the end of the third movie when Peter goes into that jazz bar that MJ is singing at. And there's like one specific shot that literally just like makes my heart melt. And Peter just extends his hand up to her while she's on stage and she just reaches down and grabs it. And I almost wish that it cut to black as soon as they touched hands because I think that would have been perfect. But I think that that scene alone just gives me all the goosebumps and makes me feel real warm inside. I love the way that they, they come out the other side of this movie feeling stronger. I, I think that a couple of choices they make are bad. I don't like that Peter punches MJ. <laughs> like Peter straight up assaults MJ at one point in this movie. And I think that's a really weird choice to make for your movie about a superhero for children. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I feel like it, it does show how, how wrong he's become. Yes, I, so, I agree. But, is it the best way to show that? It, no, yeah. it feels like, it feels like a lazy, what does bad, what do bad people do? Oh, they hit their girlfriends. Okay. Peter will hit his girlfriend and everyone will realize that he's a bad person. Like, I feel like it was a lazy way for them to get their point across instead of putting the work in. And I think ultimately that's because Sam Raimi very loudly did not want to put Venom in this movie. <laughs> and so he was forced to do a lot of stuff that he didn't want to do. And I mean, coming down to it, you guys are absolutely right. This is a studio movie first and Sam Raimi was kind of bummed out. Not I'm only- add to this. I want to add to this really, really quick. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Toby was a bad boyfriend. Yep. But Kirsten was a worse MJ and you cannot deny that to <laughs> me. <laughs> Jeez, that woman was just, oh my God, listen. MJ, Kirsten dumps MJ throughout the entirety of the films. The way she toys with Peter, <laughs> like a lot. Let's be honest. She loved Spider-Man. She didn't love Peter. I think, I think, yeah, I think the one scene that, the one scene that makes me agree with you, and I disagree mostly, I think MJ is a pretty strong character, even if I don't love some of the choices they make. But I think the one scene that I'll agree with you that's like really messed up and always makes me cringe is at the beginning of Spider-Man 2, after everyone disperses from Peter's birthday party, he meets MJ in the backyard of his house and she's talking to him and she's almost kind of like trying to get him to like hit on her or like trying to get him to like rekindle what they had at the end of the first one. And as soon as he denies it, she just goes well I'm with someone right now and it that is the one moment where I was like okay so she's kind of manipulative and not really a good person like I don't want them to be together anymore <laughs> like they do a, they, that is the one scene I'll agree with you where it's kind of uncomfortable and weird I have a couple quick thoughts then we got to move to uh, the amazing series uh, first thought I agree with you guys about MJ I don't know if this from her performance or from the writing but for me the music continually sold it so even if I don't like what's actually happening the music always pulled my heart so i even in spider-man 3 i think the romance it it still moves me in a way um also spider-man 3 hot take maybe it's from the editor's cut i don't know i thought the first hour was okay i thought they set up the villains pretty well i thought the second hour they didn't know how to finish it so for me it, it feels like they set up a much bigger movie and then they didn't know how to contain it so it just implodes on itself at the end one thing that they did do really well that you know we kind of alluded to was the sandman and you know you can say whatever you want to say about his effects but he was a very emotionally compelling vi- uh, villain mm-hmm. you know he he was robbing banks and you know stealing to help his sick kid you don't get yeah. much more grounded and you know you you, you kind of are rooting for the Sandman because he's doing it for his family. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So after, you know, some more studio battles, stuff hit the fan. Uh, everyone left from Spider-Man 4. 
eventually Sony rebooted 10 years after Spider-Man 1. Isla, what are your thoughts on The Amazing Spider-Man 1 with Mark Webb and Andrew Garfield? Well, to start off, I don't think we necessarily needed another origin story. And we got more of the origin story here. Oh, yeah. So that was kind of not not as interesting to me as a viewer. One thing that I thought they did really well was the relationship between Peter and Gwen. I think that, you know, the actors had great chemistry. It was really well developed. The The relationship with Peter and Gwen's dad was just superb. And I, that was something I thought that the Amazing Spider-Man movies just got was top notch with. Yeah. I completely agree on all fronts. Um, I think that they kind of went, they, they kind of did a weird thing. Everyone was kind of tired of the origin story. So instead of getting rid of the origin story, they made the origin story the entire first hour of the movie. And it's really exhausting by the time you get to the end of it. You're just like, oh, he has the spider suit now. Can we get to the end of the movie? Like, <laughs> it's super tiring. And I, I I agree. I think their chemistry is really great. I think that, um, yeah. what's his name? Dennis Leary. I think Dennis Leary turns in a really great performance. I love, I, there was one specific shot um i had it on in the background the other night and there was one specific shot where it's at the end of the movie when they catch him and he's sitting down on the ground and he's about to demask peter because he finally caught him and you could they kind of do like a sweeping shot behind captain stacy as he goes and rips off the mask and it was like it kind of caught my it kind of caught my attention for a second it kind of took my breath away i was really impressed they do a lot of interesting stuff with both of these movies and I think this movie is a good start, but yeah, they definitely wasted far too much time on the origin story. To me, I'm going to have to play devil's advocate again, I see. Uh, to, <laughs> me, to me, like the, the reasoning why they probably did the origin story as much as they did. To me, look, I, I think The Amazing Spider-Man 1 was done so drastically different because everyone wanted films. And everyone had gone accustomed to, you, you just had three films of Sam Raimi. There was going to be a fourth one. That one got canceled. So they had to make a new one. And I think they did that origin story in the sense to try to sell to the audience. Someone else can be Peter Parker and, and, and just go in a direction that was different from what the Raimi films have done before. In the sense that Andrew Garfield's Spider-Man was more... Like, yeah, he was he was not necessarily the same type of Boy Scout that Toby was. He was more of a little bit more relatable to the modern teenager, I suppose, with the skateboarding and the outfit, which I know is like a point that everyone likes to usually comment. Oh, Andrew's the cool Spider-Man because he skateboards. But I really liked the way that in it showed Andrew and you you see this often more in like the second one as well. It showed Spider-Man being more quippy in the sense of like the comics because like Raimi was a little bit more serious often at times while fighting. You could often have like Andrew's Spider-Man just be very quippy and make puns while fighting. And that was like really, that was really taking material not only from the comics, but also like the animated series at times when they would like make quips. For example, Andrew's first interaction with like the, the robber and he and like the robber asks him, are you a cop? And he goes, really, you think I'm a cop in a yeah. red and blue snuggle suit? So yeah. like it's those small moments like that that really define not only Andrew Garfield's Spider-Man as a completely different character from Toby's, but also is recognizable as Spider-Man in his own way. And that's something that I think the amazing Spider-Man films excelled at with Andrew Garfield's portrayal. 
Yeah, I really, really love the chemistry between Andrew and Emma. I think it, it might be my, my favorite couple from all the movies. Don't we all? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I think The Amazing Spider-Man, it, one, it, it suffers when it's trying to retell the Raimi movies. Like the whole thing with getting Uncle Ben's killer again, like, come on, man. We, the, you can't top what, what Spider-Man 1 did. But they still try to do this weird... I felt a lot. They, they tried to redo parts of that movie. And I'm not a fan. I'm also not a fan of some new things like the secret agent Richard Parker. But when, <laughs> but when it's, it's trying to just be a Spider-Man movie, I think, it, I think it, it's pretty cool. Um, there's, one, there's one moment I'm, I'm showing. I'll add this in the show notes. One moment when he's on the train right after he gets bitten. And he starts getting these flashes. And basically, it's the train. Again, this is frame by frame. They did the same weird thing. It's one frame each. It's the train going through the train tracks. And it's it, it flashes a red and blue intercut with the spiders from Oscorp. And, and, then it, and then it cuts to his DNA. So for me, it's like the, the train is the, the spider powers going through the train tracks, going through his veins. And it, it's these shots. So it's like blue train, blue spider, red train, DNA. It's just like subliminal messaging to say this train is the spider powers going through his blood system. And like, that is cool. That is wicked cool. And I, I just wish the movie really thrived with that inventiveness more uh, instead of trying to retell the same story we already knew. But in a lot of elements, I do like how it's still the classic Peter Parker. Everything slightly changed, but like in the context of the multiverse, you can see how this is another version of that same Tobey Maguire and of the later Tom Holland. You can see how these three guys are three versions of the same boy, just in different worlds. And I think I think that'll be so cool if No Way Home really gives us all three Spider-Men. It'll be so cool to see these three mirrors of kind of the same guy with kind of the same life, but from three different worlds. So I'm curious to see how um, No Way Home handles the lizard because in the in the Amazing Spider-Man movie, the lizard, I think, is, you know, Curtis Connors is a little bit of a miss with his motivations after he becomes, you know, full full on lizard man. You know, he he's lost his arm. He's kind of being driven by this this desire and need to get his limb back. He's also kind of motivated a little bit because he's kind of been an outcast at Oscorp. He's under a lot of pressure from um, Norman Osborn, who I think we see in the first movie, but I know we definitely see as he, you know, dies in the second movie. He has a lot of professional ground to make up. So he injects himself with this, this thing that makes him, you know, grow his limb. And all of a sudden, like his, mo the thing he wants most in life is to make a race of lizard people instead of, <laughs> and I, I just, that, that that's jarring to me i like it it doesn't seem to quite fit <laughs> i do love how just wacky sci-fi that is and i wish i wish we saw a shot of new york like half infested with lizard people i really <laughs> wish they went like full just wacky sci-fi with that um but we gotta move on oh one, one last thing before we move on tasm one why does he walk around why why does connor's walk around with a stump Man doesn't even get himself a prosthetic. He works at a science company. They have all kinds of bionic stuff. They, they have an exosuit for Goblin later on. Why doesn't he not have any kind of prosthetic or anything? I'm just, I'm just asking. All right, <laughs> Tasm 2. Tucker, tell me about it. Um, oh, boy. Okay. I have a lot of feelings about this movie. I think that... I think it's kind of underrated. I like the... I like... A lot of what they do, I think, like you said, 
I think that the special agent Richard Parker bullcrap is like way overblown. And every time, I mean, I hate that they open the movie with it because like it makes it feel like they're trying to imbue this feeling of importance on us, even though we all know that it doesn't mean jack crap. And instead, we just sit there and waste our time watching something that really doesn't matter to the rest of the movie. I am of the opinion that if you cut the Richard Parker stuff out entirely, like cut out the opening scene, cut out the scene later on where he finds the coins in his calculator or whatever, Mm -hmm. and then cut out the scene where he goes inside the train, like cut out all that stuff. It's probably like 20, 30 minutes. This movie is excellent. I really do think that. I think that there is a lot of weird stuff that they do sure I, I agree that harry's relationship with peter is a little off i don't think they do a good job establishing that i think that electro is kind of dorky but in the same way that i love batman forever i stand by this in the same way that i love batman forever i think this movie is exactly the same i think i love the exaggerated skyline of new york city i love the way peter swings around it i love the colors in this movie like after the first movie being so kind of dark and drab this movie is really bright and beautiful and I think the scene, I think. Do you get whiplash from that, from from the difference between the two movies? I I do a little bit. And I, it only makes me, watching uh, Spider-Man 2, I think, Amazing Spider-Man 2, I think it only makes me wish that Amazing Spider-Man 1 was more like that. And I think that they were so focused on the, on the kind of, I don't even know how to describe it, like the down on his luck life of the outcast Peter Parker that the whole movie's style just kind of followed along with it and the movie was kind of darker and his suit was kind of whatever I don't the point is I really love how colorful this movie is I love how comic booky it feels I I don't know how I feel about uh, Peter and Gwen's relationship I think that they kind of tried to sidestep a decision that they made in the last movie and it kind of drags on because at the end of the movie, he's like, oh, I won't date her anymore because I don't want to bring danger. But then like a lot of this movie is dedicated to him kind of just stalking Gwen. <laughs> like, <laughs> so I don't know. I don't know how I feel. I really love this movie a lot. And I think that it gets a lot of crap, but I think rightful crap. I mean, there's a lot of junk in this movie that could be shaved off. I just, I like it so much that I'm willing to put in the effort to look past it. One quick point. Remember also Tasm 1 was 2012, right? So that's in the wake of the Nolan films. And that's like right before we got the 2015 Fan 4 stick. So it, I think I really appreciate how even in, they tried to make it dark in this night aesthetic and whatever, but I like that the heart of Peter is still good. He, he's in a more modern world. It's a little more broken, but his heart, he's still good kid Peter Parker. And I'm I'm A-okay with that. Alex, what are you saying? To me, Tazen 2 is... It, it, I feel the same way Tucker does in a way in the sense that it is a jumble and there are certain things that I would take out of it, like the whole Richard Parker secret agent thing, because I know they were just going off that what if comic of what if Richard Parker was a secret agent. Or, but uh, to me, there was this, there's a lot of things about this film that I really enjoyed. First off, it, it gives us the best Spider-Man suit, in my opinion, period, because it's the most comic accurate. The colors, the facial lenses, yeah, I agree. And the the visuals, the cinematography, the effects, and, and and there was also this one comment about there are two different things in Tazlin. We talked about this earlier about how the music makes the character, and there are times when, like for example, I, 
I listen to James Horner's theme and it's, and it really is to me the more prevalent theme for the amazing Spider-Man, but the amazing Spider-Man 2 theme from Hans Zimmer is just incredible as well. And not only that, but it's probably the first time that a villain's theme is more impactful in the sense that I think it was, I, I know a lot, I think I'm in the minority with this, but I really loved the, the dubstepy thing for yeah. electro yeah. and it like the combination of strings and electronic music was just something that I absolutely love. And, and the voices, and, right? the voices in his head. Yes. Yeah, the voices in his head as well. And there was one particular, adding one more thing. Everyone knew the moment screenshots of this film were going to come out, Gwen was going to die because of the damn code. Everyone knew this was going to be like, oh, they're going to kill Gwen Stacy in this movie. But talking about Gwen in this part, at least in the sense of this film, there was... I. Adding to, going to contrast with Tucker here on what he mentioned with Gwen and like Andrew stalking her, which, which is true. She, he does stalk her, but he's conflicted between his feelings of he wants to be with her, but he keeps having these flashbacks with, his, with, with the father, which to me was shocking. Like I remember seeing the movie in theaters and like the first time he has like this vision of Gwen's dad in the police car. And I was like, wait a minute, aren't you dead? <laughs> I was like panicked. I'm like, whoa, what happened here? And it and it really like cements this idea of he wants like the contrast again, the contrast of Peter Parker and Spider-Man and trying to balance these lives. And at the end, he goes, I'm not gonna let someone dominate my love life or dominate how I feel. I love Gwen Stacy and I will do my best to protect her. And what those choices eventually lead to. And then there's this, there's also this, we never mentioned this, but there's this one line that's always been throughout the the Amazing Spider-Man films, which is promises being made and promises being broken. And there's this line from Tazel One, which is like, Mr. Parker, you can't, uh, you can't make promises you can't keep. And he responds, those are the best kind yeah and then it continues on with like Tazen one he promises like Gwen's dad that he was going to stay away from her and keep her safe and we really go into the sense of what happens when you break that promise and it ends with Gwen's death and to me that was just fantastic storytelling as we're telling from Mark Webb and the, the screenwriters and I, yeah. just, I just love that there are consequences to the promise being broken and the film really you know explores that well you you don't just get off without there you know being being any resulting pain back to talk a little bit about electro i think again he's a villain that we kind of almost root for too you know he's a guy that's really been overlooked and is kind of downtrodden you know his boss and he's played by the same guy who plays ryan from the office i always forget his real name but you know i think those interactions just we can empathize so much with that like everyone's had a crappy boss and this boss is just particularly cruel. So I think, you know, Electro is really, really fun. One criticism I, I have, it's a little bit strange. Um, when, when May is telling Peter the, like, the truth 
about his dad and how his dad left, Peter immediately believes the lie that like Richard Parker lied and blah, blah, blah. But he, I think in the first movie or earlier in, in Tasm 2, he's already cynical of Oscorp. He has a line, I, I don't know, some line in like the elevators or in the closet or something like about how Oscorp is covering things up. And so I don't understand why he's so upset when May tells him Richard Parker did all these terrible things when he already knows Oscorp is a shady company that does shady things. Why wouldn't he immediately suspect that maybe this was the lie i don't know it's one wrinkle i will say this because i do hate the richard parker stuff i've made that very clear i will go to my grave and like you like you said i will have go away richard parker engraved on it but i think there's a big payoff to that storyline and i think that the scene where may approaches peter about his or maybe he maybe he approaches her about the obsession that he has and he's like why don't you tell me the truth and then may just breaks down and she pleads with him you're my boy you're my boy it literally makes me cry every single time i can't handle it like i don't it's not the story it's not i i mean maybe it's the writing maybe that maybe that just got me real good maybe it's the acting i must say yeah the acting is really great that i hate the whole storyline but if that is what we get because of it then maybe i'm okay with it because it's really well done and i just it makes me appreciate the movie a little bit more when it can do things like that i feel like in general the the raimi trilogy is so rich with emotions and i feel the web movies they still give you i don't know if it has the same highs or the same lows but I still felt a lot of powerful heart and emotion and romance or I felt things in those and the home movies I, I don't feel it as much as they're fun and entertaining but I don't I feel like each franchise it loses some of the heart of, of Spider-Man but Webb I think is, is is in some kind of middle ground I think Isla? Yeah I think um, going back to that scene with May where she says that he's he's her boy you know Richard Parker wasn't a good dad he left his son you know May and, and Uncle Ben just really stepped up in a big way and that's so powerful yeah all right so that was tasm 2 2014 <laughs> just the next year it was announced that spider-man would be joining the mcu and he would be reboot andrew garfield out so we got spider-man joining captain america civil war the first time spider-man was ever in an ensemble on screen alex what do you think about the russo spider-man so civil war avengers 3 avengers 4 so there's always like this one major difference between the way the Russos interpreted Spider-Man while at the same time John Watts interpreted Spider-Man. So the way Watts interpreted Spider-Man was Spider-Man centered into his own world. Like he's Spider-Man is in the MCU, but it's a more story focused on him. Now, the Russos, on the other hand, what they did was they took Spider-Man from his world and didn't make him the complete focus. The focus of, like, for example, Captain America Civil War, Avengers Infinity War, Avengers Endgame, he was a character amongst a much larger story. And in a universe where we've literally seen characters that are, we've had gods and, and monsters and super soldiers and whatever, it was nice to see a character that was more relatable to this story and make it a little bit more realistic, I think, in the sense that's what I think the Russos tried to achieve. Trying to make Spider-Man, like, the more grounded aspect. There's a line in Infinity War where he goes, you can't be your friendly neighborhood Spider-Man if there's no neighborhood. Like, Tom's version, at least with the Russos, is that one character that's, like, really grounded. And he, he's just fantastic when he's with the Russos. Notice how I didn't mention once. 
I have an issue really quick. I have to go. I'm just going to go over those films really quick because I, I have to go. So Spider-Man Homecoming was, it was a very, very incredible reboot in trying to tell a Spider-Man story without delving too much into his origin. We talked about this earlier. I think it's the first Spider-Man story where we don't really delve that much into his origin, but we we're already just in the middle of it. And I really love how that's kind of like the starting point for this Spider-Man. He's Spider-Man, he's struggling with his reality and who he is and all of the things that he has to do and like trying to balance his love life with being a hero. And then just to me, I think the Michael Keaton as Vulture was just incredible casting. And to me, I rarely get surprised at these movies because I often like theorize and often I'm right. But the whole Vulture is, when Vulture is Liz's dad, that was like the most shocking moment for me. And I just absolutely love that. Great moment, yeah. What, what's your favorite, is that your favorite moment in the movie? Yes, just the, the twist. I was like, oh shit, I literally screamed that in a giant ass yeah. theme. <laughs> yeah. What's so cool about it, it's not really something that's spoiled, but it's not something that any comic fan knew. It's n Nobody knew that without seeing the movie because it's just such an original idea. It's fantastic. Yep. What yep. do you think about Far From Home? Far From Home really is a departure. First off, I'm just, I love the fact that we finally got to see my favorite comic book villain made to life, The Fishbowl. That's like the number one thing I was most looking forward to this when I saw Far From Home and that Jake Gyllenhaal was cast as Mysterio. I was like, I really need the fishbowl in this movie. And I'm just glad that we got the, the opportunity to see Mysterio uh, in this film. And not only that, but the visuals with Mysterio's effects and illusions was just absolutely incredible and phenomenal. And to me, I think the biggest surprise of it all was the post credit scene when Spider-Man's identity is revealed at the end of the film, because that's something that's never been done before in Spider-Man films. So... It was, it's nice to see that Marvel took risks with the character and, and they're about to pay off with Spider-Man No Way Home. In general, did you like Far From Home or Homecoming better? You can't ask me that question. <laughs> as, in, as in they're both good? Oh God, uh, objectively Homecoming is better, but okay. personally I love Far From Home more. <laughs> great answer, great answer. All right, No Way Home and the future of Spidey in the MCU. What do you what do you think is coming next for Spider-Man after this movie comes out? I can't answer that question without delving into spoilers. I'm kidding. <laughs> um, no, but we have right now the tease of Venom, so there is definitely going to be. We're definitely going to get a symbiote storyline starting after No Way Home, like maybe Spider-Man Four or maybe one of the Spider-Man series is going to delve into that. We're definitely going to get a college trilogy at this point because he's about to go to college. And I think that we're definitely going to see a new set of characters delve into this world with him and make it more centralized. Because now that the multiverse is opened, pretty much anything can be possible. We could see Morbius, we could see other characters return at some point, not only in the MCU, but also in other Sony franchises. You have Miles Morales and Across the Spider-Verse. You have the potential to have an old man-styled reboot of Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man, at least one more spin-off. There's the possibility of The Amazing Spider-Man also continuing later on at some point. 
But that all depends on how No Way Home progresses. And honestly, I think we're in we're in to have Spider-Man for a really long time. Hmm. I have this crackpot theory that Venom 3 will be a Spider-Man Venom crossover. Do you have any thoughts on that that you can share? I originally was going to write an article about that that was called mm-hmm. Spider-Man Maximum Carnage. Mm-hmm. But that theory clearly went out the window for some reasons that I can't explain. But I will say I don't necessarily agree in the okay. sense that Venom 3 is going to be a Spider-Man crossover film, mainly because I think they're going to try to set up Venom as the lethal protector and try to do more with the character and explore more of his background before including Spider-Man. So there's a chance that we could get Venom 3 and interact with Spider-Man, but I feel like a Venom-Spider-Man crossover is, is a film in its own. So I think it's going to be another film entirely. All right. That's great, man. Uh, do, you, do you have some more time or do you need to go now? I have to kind of go really quick. Love it. But, uh, thank you guys so much for having me. I appreciate y'all are awesome. And I hope you guys have a wonderful day. And thank you for listening to the podcast. Yeah, you too. <laughs> Thank you. See you, Alex. Thanks. All right, Isla, what did you think about Homecoming? All right. So I'm going to talk about, you know, our villain again, because apparently I like I, I just think of the bad guys and that's that's my thing. <laughs> um, so I think I, I really enjoyed Homecoming. Like it was mentioned, I think that it is, again, um, more friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. He is he's in his element in New York, whereas in Civil War, he was um, a small fish in a big pond surrounded by, you know, all these major Avengers. Um I think that, you know, the Holland portrayal of Spider-Man is just super charming and super endearing. Um, I think he comes off much younger than the other Spider-Man, Spider-Man. And, you know, considering that so much of this is in high school, that's that's a good thing. Um, you know, to talk about the vulture, I think that he's a compelling villain because, again, he's motivated by his family, just like Sandman was. And it's hard to hard to hate someone when they're doing something just to take care of their family. There's a scene where, you know, Michael Keaton playing the vulture kind of turns around in the car when Liz and yes. Peter are on the date. And that's so creepy and well done. And I just I think that's my favorite scene in the whole movie. Such a great scene. And the, the lights of the stoplights are changing on his face. Like it's red and then turns green. And then you see his eyes in the mirror and it's like a horror movie for just, oh, a great So scene. tense. Yeah. Uh, Tucker, what do you think? Um, I don't know if you would call me the minority because I feel like these, I feel like the public opinion on these movies is kind of, I mean, I don't know. They made a billion dollars. I wouldn't call that split. It's pretty straightforward. People like these movies. I don't love these movies. I don't really hate him either i'm kind of indifferent i agree i really love that peter feels real young he feels kind of inexperienced and immature and i feel like they've done a pretty good job keeping focus on the idea of him kind of slowly maturing the first movie he takes it upon himself to stop a big i don't know what would you call it a crime ring i mean a flying bird from uh, robbing Tony Stark's plane. So, I mean, that's a really big step. And I think that they do a really good job at portraying that. I, I think they're, I don't know. I really, I can't, I am indifferent. It's hard to come up with something to complain about or compliment about when I but feel that these movies are weird. Do you, or do you feel that you're leaning more positive or, or negative? Or are you just, they're movies, they exist? <laughs> I mean, kind of that. I, I, oh, I am Lord. positive. I'll, I'll say that. I'll agree. Yeah. I, it is positive. Yeah. I, I like... 
especially this movie. I think Michael Keaton for sure carries this movie. I love the idea that he's kind of just like a blue collar guy who mm-hmm. got screwed by Tony Stark and now he has to like he literally has to fight for his family's well-being. And I kind of like the idea that he's gotten carried away with it. And now his family lives in a rich colonial house in the suburbs of New York. And he's no longer doing this for the well-being of his family, but he's kind of just doing it because he likes to do it. And, you know, I, I like just feel quick. I, I just I just thought of uh, Walter White from Breaking Bad. Yeah. And his, yeah. his arc. And it's I mean, it's not the crazy that crazy, but why not? You know, it's similar. I would say that it's probably more crazy because I've never seen Walter White vaporize a guy because he said that he was gonna <laughs> tell his wife what he does. Like, oh, oh, well, you know, there's that scene with the acid in the bathtub. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fair enough. <laughs> fair enough. But like, I do, I, I do agree though. I mean, Michael Keaton, I think, kind of gets not thrown out of the bus, but a little overshadowed. The MCU is a really big place. There's a lot of people mm-hmm. who act in it. So I think when looking at the grand scheme, it's hard to go, this guy does a really great job, but I, th- I think he does. I think Michael Keaton kind of owns this movie. Dangerous question for you two. You- you've both seen Shang-Chi, right? Uh, yes. yes. Tony Leung's Mandarin, uh, Michael Keaton's Vulture. Which villain did you like better? Do you, do you think they're both just fantastic or do you think one? Um, I'll, I'll say uh, Tony Leung, definitely. I think that the Mandarin, I don't know. I don't want to get too much into it because obviously we're having a different discussion, but I will definitely mm-hmm. say Tony Leung. But I don't think that's a knock on Michael Keaton. I think my, mm-hmm. I think Michael Keaton did a great job. I think they're just two fantastic all-time actors who did their work on a Marvel Studios movie. Yeah, I think they both did a phenomenal job. Um, if, you know, looking at the story, I find, you know, the Vulture much more redeeming than than the Mandarin, just because, you know, the Mandarin killed millions of people or thousands of people over, like, all of these these yeah. years. And, yeah. you know, the Vulture at the end, ultimately, like, doesn't do a heel turn, but, like, he, he protects Spider-Man while he's in jail. He's still redeemed. And I don't think that the Mandarin has been redeemed at all. Yeah, I don't know if I could. I, I feel like they're they're kind of comparable in like this their strength. I don't know if I could. I I know it's cheating. I asked you guys the question, but I can't answer it. But I I love them both. I, well, I, I'll... I think Tony Leung. I don't even know if he's human. The the way he performs with his eyes, no one can touch that. Yeah, I mean thematically they're a little different though. Tony Leung, his his Mandarin is very romance focused. He's kind of blinded by the love that he had for his wife, and it kind of draws him into something more terrible. And I think that the difference is that uh, Adrian Toomes is very of his own mind, and he's very confident in what he does. And I love the conversations that him and Tom Holland have in the movie, because I think that their interactions and the way they kind of talk to each other, like the fact that this whole movie is about him growing up, it's very fitting that Adrian Toomes kind of treats him as a son and as a kid. He's basically just like, I'm going to do this, and you can't stop me. (laughs) Like, he's very confident, and I really like that. It's more of that personal relationship with the villain again. He's, you know, kind of like a a quasi-father figure, even though they they didn't have that that mentor relationship. It's interesting to me how much of the Homecoming movie, you know, stands on the shoulders and rests on the storytelling of the rest of the MCU. And that's very different than, obviously, you know, the Raimi Spider-Mans and the Amazing Spider-Mans. Like, this movie is nothing without without Tony Stark, you know, from from the vultures motivations which was mentioned to yeah <laughs> I, I i don't maybe i'm a nutcase i really think you could do some version or edit of this movie where the, the that mentor figure isn't tony stark iron man who you've seen in like 11 movies but i think you could just 
change him into just a Doc Brown figure or, or some kind of just general mentor figure. And I think the movie might might kind of work um, without without the, the backlog of Iron Man stuff. I think Far From Home, my Lord, I don't even know Far From Home, the Spider-Man movie. <laughs> like Homecoming, compared to the other Spider-Mans, I feel it has a lot less heart, a lot less emotion, but more um, more action, more entertainment, maybe. For, for me, I think Homecoming's comedy is, is funnier. It's closer to what I like. Yeah. And it's not just Peter being funny. It's the movie itself is really funny. The side characters are funny. Far From Home, I do not think it has the same funniness. I don't think it has the same heart. And I don't even think it's even about Peter. I think Far From Home is all about the ghost of Tony Stark. And when Twitter tells you Iron Boy Jr., I feel Far From Home is the only reason why this Peter Parker is associated so closely to Iron Man. Like Homecoming Iron Man's in it, but I feel like Far From Home kind of is like, they should just, I don't know, I feel like it's the ghost of Iron Man (laughs) movie. And I, I really felt it was unfair to the people who wanted just a Spider-Man movie. What do you guys think? Um, I'll, I'll elaborate a little bit and I have two kind of two points. I agree. Like, I, I think it kind of sucks because I think homecoming is about the exact opposite of that. I think homecoming is mm-hmm. a lot about Peter becoming what is not Iron Man. And it's about him kind of mm-hmm. growing out from under that shadow. And I think that far from home, like you said, it's a little unfair in the way that it kind of drags him by his ankles back into the shadow of Iron Man and I really I'll agree that I kind of feel that movie bursting at the seams that it's like kind of dying to escape from the life of Tony Stark and I don't know I think that maybe I don't know what it is about it maybe they leaned on the familiarity or whatever but I think Far From Home definitely gets carried away in the way that it portrays Peter because I mean the whole movie is about I mean you're right the whole movie Mm -hmm. is about Tony Stark the whole movie is about the Edith glasses and about who's going to be the next who Peter thinks could be the next Tony Stark and I I definitely think that they did this movie a disservice because I think this movie definitely could have been more interesting had they leaned more on Tom and leaned more on Peter there's there's a, definitely some good scenes I love the scene where Happy and Peter are talking and Peter just kind of breaks down and he's crying and he doesn't he feels like he's lost himself but then they kind of just go right back into the normalcy of Peter Parker as Spider-Man like there's no I don't I don't feel like this movie takes its time I feel like it's in a hurry I, I don't know I, I think this movie is definitely the worst of the two I'll agree with that there's that scene with Aunt May Um, where he's in the iron spider suit and, you know, the paparazzi are basically, you know, snapping photographs and and questioning him, you know, are you the next Iron Man? Are you going to replace him? And that, you know, basically explains the entire movie. You know, he's trying to get out of that shadow. But I think Endgame, Endgame kind of was the, almost the inverse of that because, so Tony Stark was haunted by Spider-Man too and Spider-Man's death. But it wasn't, you know, it didn't overshadow everything he'd had. Yeah, definitely. I have a crazy crackpot theory. When I was watching Far From Home, like when I'm watching movies, you know, I'm always theorizing in my head what's going to happen. What do I think? When I was watching Far From Home and like you get scenes like um, they're they're all asking him, are you going to be the next Iron Man? Who is going to ask Spider-Man if he's going to be the next Iron Man? Like, why wouldn't you ask, I don't know, literally any of the other Avengers who are still alive? Why would you ask little guy Spider-Man? So when when this whole movie started so Iron Man focused and about the pressure of Peter to be the next Iron Man and that scene from the reporters, it cuts to like Peter's just chilling on a rooftop. He looks and there's a giant Iron Man mural just looking at him. Then every country they go to, there's Iron Man murals looking at him. So I thought the whole movie, as I was watching, I thought the whole movie was uh, a, a dream 
and it was a fantasy induced by Mysterio. Like Mysterio's like probing Peter's psychology. And so I thought everything was like reflecting Peter, this pressure he put on himself to be the next Iron Man. And so I thought that's why it's not realistic. That's why it's a little bit ridiculous. And that's why Ned and Betty are suddenly dating because that's a dream that weird <laughs> shit happens in dreams. That's why that's why May and Happy, they're dating too because it's a dream. Weird stuff happens. So for me, that's what I thought. Oh man, I love this. This is crazy. You know, like I'm a DC fan. So I thought it was like Hugo Strange when he's messing with Batman's mind. And I, I thought that was that. And then Jake Gyllenhaal, there's some shots where to me, he looked like an older Tom Holland, just like with a beard. And there's some shots, especially when he puts on the Edith glasses, where he looked to me like a bit like Robert Downey Jr. So I thought, okay, Jake Gyllenhaal, perfect casting. He is this avatar that Peter created. Mysterio is the perfect hero that Peter wants to be. Mysterio is this new figure who was created by Peter's mind to replace Iron Man. So Peter doesn't have to replace Iron Man. This new figment of his imagination will. So, so Mysterio is this perfect, he's Peter Parker plus Iron Man. And that is Jake Gyllenhaal's casting. And that is, that explains his super, his, his bulky suit with the LEDs. And I was like, okay, man, I'm down for this weird, crazy twist. And then the movie does give you that twist in, in the bar and it's a different twist and it's, it's cool. But I, I honestly think the direction they went in where, no, this is reality and reality, just this funny stuff happens. I don't like that as much as my crazy fan fiction that yeah. I wrote in my head while watching the movie. Mm-hmm. I like- that sounds like that needs to be an article. You know, what, what yeah. should have happened yeah. fixing yeah. Far From Home? Yeah. I don't even know if, it, if it's fixing it because it, what I'm proposing is like so different. I mean, well, it might just be my Vin's crazy Far From Home and redo. I, I don't know. And I think, that, I think that your idea is kind of the solution to the biggest problem that I have with this movie. I think that the biggest issue is that it kind of gets ahead of itself. I mean, by the time when you come into this movie, let's pretend that you're a person who's never heard of Mysterio because every mm-hmm. Spider-Man fan knew Mysterio was going to be a villain. Mm-hmm. So let's pretend you go into this movie no, not knowing who Mysterio is. And they presented this huge conflict about, oh, you've had to take down these elementals and this is the movie. Like basically the movie's like, this is the movie. And by the time you get to the end where he's defeated the elementals, you're only like, you check your watch and you're only an hour into the movie and you go, oh crap, there's still more to this movie. And you kind of roll your eyes and you're exhausted already. And I think that's the biggest issue is that it's not, it's not structured right. And I think they did that because they wanted to do the twist. They kind of worked backwards and they were like, oh, let's introduce Mysterio as a villain and that'll be interesting. And maybe some people will get caught off guard by that. And then the rest of the movie- Introduce him as a hero. Or yeah, introduce him as a hero. And then I think the rest of the movie kind of pays the price for that decision because then you have to rush the story forward from the beginning and you have to, oh, here's Nick Fury and now he has a new suit and now they're going to do this plan. And then the back half of the movie is like, it feels super slow in comparison and you're just kind of like, okay, when are we getting to the big part where he finds out who he is and then he finds out who he is and then he has to go from all the way from where is he like the Netherlands or somewhere he has to go all the way back to England like it gets kind of exhausting and it's kind of tiring and it feels really long-winded even though this movie's not all that long like it gets tired yeah Mysterio happens the twist happens right at the middle point it's like I think the movie's like exactly two hours and I think that happens right at the hour point oh wow yeah 
One thing we didn't talk about, though, in Far From Home is um, some of the things that it got really right with like the humor, because there are so many funny mo moments in Far From Home. Um, Night Monkey is like amazing and really yeah. funny. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I laughed out loud a lot at that. So that was that was super entertaining. I um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I definitely agree. This movie, because a lot of people when uh, Homecoming came out, a lot of people compared that to a John Hughes, 80 high school movies, 16 Candles, Breakfast Club, whatever. And I definitely think that's true. I think Watts kind of puts that identity into both of these movies. But I think specifically Far From Home feels a lot more like that. It's I feel like even even if the humor doesn't work for me, I definitely feel like it's more humor based the stuff with the kid who they say he was just a little boy whenever we snapped and now we come back and he's our age and now <laughs> he he jumps into the room when peter has his pants down and he thinks he's hooking up with some exotic european woman like there is a lot of i feel like this movie is a lot more humor oriented and i kind of appreciate that because it makes it feel more lighthearted and fun but ultimately i think the structure is so hard to kind of it's a it's a hard to swallow pill and it gets tired it's a it's a mash of a road trip movie and an mcu movie yeah and it's, definitely. you know it, it struggles yeah speaking of uh, brad that guy um, <laughs> I, I i thought the the edith scene on the bus i thought that was so like big and so wild where like peter sends drones to destroy the whole bus so that's part of the reason why i thought it was just a wild dream nightmare like i i, yeah. I still can't believe some yeah. of these scenes in this movie are like no that this is canon this is real this happened i don't know it doesn't work for me um but the end of far from home big reveal jjj is back and also, everyone knows Peter Spider-Man. Tucker, what are your thoughts and theories for No Way Home and what it means for the rest of Spidey and the MCU? Oh, boy. Okay. Um, let me just say this. The night, <laughs> the, the night that tickets went on sale, I sat up in my room for a very long time. I was not quite as dedicated as Alex. Alex said he stayed up until like 5.30 a.m. to get tickets. I kind of checked out at two o'clock, but let me just say I was very excited. And as soon as I secured them, finally, I was just kind of, I mean, I just kind of sat back in my bed and I was kind of freaking out because this is the movie that kind of feels like my whole life has led up to. I told you guys the earliest memory in my whole life is receiving the DVD of Spider-Man 2 and these movies have been so impactful for me and very important for me that it's kind of weird to, uh, it's kind of weird to think, I never got the chance to see any of these guys in theaters. So it's kind of weird to think that I'm going to get to go see Toby. And what's funny is like, none of this is confirmed, but everyone on the internet knows the truth. Like uh, Sony can try as hard as they want to stop it. But like, I mean, it's just, it's surreal. It, it really is surreal. I was sitting on my couch the other night watching uh, maybe football or something with my stepdad and my mom and a trailer for it came on and I just kind of looked at them I was like I feel like I'm gonna cry like for real I'm Aww. seriously getting sentimental about this movie like it's weird and I even different than Endgame because Endgame I feel is comparable to this like it feels like the build-up of a lot of stuff and this it's gonna be weird and I'm I'm nervous genuinely because like I said I didn't love I didn't love Far From Home and I didn't love Homecoming mm -hmm. and I don't want this to be a movie I come up the other side of indifferent to i want to be really excited for spider-man and i want to be excited that i see a lot of cool stuff happen you know it feels like another moment you know like the first spider-man spider-man movie there's the whole world is watching and kind of waiting for this to come out you've seen the ticket sales you've seen how many people watched the trailer you know we've all experienced everything on twitter and and with with the cosmic circus about you know people looking for information about the movie and yeah. it's just there's so much hype and so much anticipation for it 
And it, you know, it, it leads me to wonder, well, what next? And I hope that after the movie is out, I hope we get some news about what's, you know, what's coming next in the, the world of Spider-Man pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, just to, you know, not to be disappointed, not to feel like it's it's over for a while. Because I think, you know, I think back to Far From Home and I think back to when there were the contract negotiations between Sony and Marvel and just how disappointing and sad that was to think of that that could have been the end of yeah. Spider-Man and the MCU. That was just, I hope we don't have another situation like that. Yeah, I, What's I, I crazy hope not is that probably at the same time, because all that contract stuff happened actually right before Far From Home came out and then during its whole release, that must have been the same time that they were planning the whole multiverse thing. I mean, I think I complete crazy theories. So I, I wonder, maybe Sony would have tried to make Spider-Man 3, they would have tried to do the whole multiverse thing themselves just without Doctor Strange. Because they, they, well, own, they own the characters, they own the movies, why not? Yeah. I don't know. Well, I have this. I have this theory. I'm going to put this out there. I'm sure that this. I'm sure this is grounded in nothing, but <laughs> I'm going to say it anyways, and I'll be embarrassed later. Back in 2019, whenever all of that was going on, I was, I was kind of sitting back and watching. I'm sure I tweeted a couple times or whatever talking about it, but I was just kind of sitting back and watching because what was happening essentially is two studios were fighting over this superhero that's very important to the rest of us. And we were all just kind of wait. It was like he was on trial and we're all waiting to see mm-hmm. what's happening. Is he going to go here? Is he going to go there? And I think that at that time, and I think just what was it like yesterday or the day before they, somebody Tom Holland said that before it was going to be multiverse, they were thinking about doing a Craven movie, mm-hmm. which isn't all that surprising. But I think that while before any of the contract negotiations happened, I think that Marvel studios and Kevin Feige were, planning on a Craven movie and then I think that what happened was that whenever Sony and Marvel got to the negotiations I think that Sony probably had the upper hand and that they had some leverage and they were like actually I think we want to make the biggest movie of all time and I think we want to bring back two of the most iconic actors to portray their roles again and I think that that's kind of how it unfolded because I mean even back then in 2019 before everything coming out of Far From Home I still remember people talking about oh, maybe we'll see uh, Daredevil show up, like he needs a lawyer, or oh, maybe we'll see Craven show up. Like these were ideas that people were having back then. And so it doesn't surprise me at all to hear that that's where they were going. And so while this multiverse stuff kind of feels like it came out of left field, like it's still exciting. And I don't really care how we got here, but I do think that it's fun to speculate on what might've happened. You know, I, I think it is a bit thin you're just looking at this as just try, trying to be objective as just an audience goer i think it's a bit thin that they go okay everyone knows his his identity is spider-man therefore <laughs> dr strange tries to undo that therefore the multiverse opens and all your yeah. favorite villains come back yeah like it you know all the cynics can look at that and it, it doesn't take a lot to say oh money i see but, <laughs> yeah exactly but it, well, it's very, very exciting. I'm really excited to see Goblin. Really excited for that. Yep. I'm nervous about Doc Ock and his CGI tentacles because the puppets were so good. Yeah. Electro, I think it'll be cool. I kind of hope that he's just another Electro, uh, maybe loosely related to Tasm too, but mostly just another universe. A lizard is a CGI lizard. Is it even the same actor? Who knows? Sandman <laughs> is a, a sandstorm with a face. I think those two guys have been a bit, it, it's strange. Like, why not? I don't know why they're not getting the same love that the other three are getting. I was. I hope I love the movie. 
I was going to say this earlier when we were talking about Amazing Spider-Man 1. I would really love if while No Way Home was happening, they just cut away and Lizard was still trying to make everyone in New York a lizard person for no reason. <laughs> um, but I agree. I'm really excited for this movie. I'm excited to see Electro because I want to see how they handle his character since that movie was so poorly received. Mm. I remember when they announced him coming back, everyone was kind of like, really, of all the people you could bring back, you pick the one that no one likes. <laughs> like, So it'll be interesting to see how they kind of reinvent him. And he's been at the forefront with Alfred Molina and Willem Dafoe promoting this movie. So I am I am curious to see how they handle his character. Something really interesting about Electro, when I was watching Far From Home, I felt I had the, the smallest idea when he, he goes into Oscorp with Harry and he's like zapping the executive guys. I got a small bit of like Dr. Manhattan vibes. And in that mm-hmm. moment, I could see the kernel of their idea for Electro. Like, oh, we'll make him blue and we'll get him like these awesome, like floating zappy powers. And it'll be like Dr. Manhattan versus Spider-Man. Okay. If you're reinventing, why not? That's kind of cool. But it was so mangled and sad. And I'm a little disappointed No Way Home is like going in this radically different direction but I, I I'm I trust them I'm, I'm excited to see whatever they do Isla? yeah so I have a crazy thing that I've been wondering about with the new Spider-Man movie so there are there are identical well not identical but there are versions of Peter Parker in each universe we have we have J. Jonah Jameson in this universe so he he's a character that exists here he exists in the Toby world what like what's going on with the Doc Ock, the Electro, <laughs> like th- those characters that presumably have co- counterparts that are out there in the world, not being villains, you know, in the Holland MCU non multiverse version. What what have they been up to? Um, My theory is that they're just normal guys, and their their crazy experiments never happened to them. Hmm. Well, so if they- you're sorry, go ahead. No, 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 go ahead. Um, my thought, and this is completely based on nothing, like I said, like all my theories are just kind of out of nowhere. <laughs> um, it kind of looks like Doc Ock is kind of going to have a come to Jesus moment, if you want to call it that, where he kind of realizes where he is. He kind of realizes what's going on. You see the scene where he's like, well, you're not Peter Parker. And they kind mm-hmm. of do that. And then they show him kind of locked up and just talking to the kids. Like, it looks like he's kind of going to become a mentor, mm-hmm. and which I think is good because, I mean, he was he was done justice he was saved at the end of Spider-Man 2. I think it would be kind of Mm -hmm. weird to backtrack on that. So what I hope is going to happen is that in the fallout of this movie, Peter maybe goes and tries to find the Otto Octavius of his own world and maybe he becomes a student of his or stuff like that. Like I would love to see them incorporate this idea of multiverse into like the future. Like it doesn't just have to be one movie. You can feel the impact of that later on. I would really love to see, especially because it was done so well in Spider-Man PS4, the relationship that Peter as a student or like a mentee of Otto, it would be interesting to see them take that on in a more permanent aspect instead of just the small conversation that they had in Spider-Man 2. That's awesome. That's really, really awesome. All right, guys, do you guys have any more thoughts about No Way Home or the seven Spider-Man movies that come before it? <laughs> I any, do. Any, any lingering thoughts? So I have a lingering thought about the amazing Spider-Man 2 and Electro. So mm-hmm. I don't know if either of you guys saw Darkwing Duck as a kid, or maybe it was before your times. Yes, but- yes. There's a villain in there, Megavolt, that I can't, you know, he, he's an electric villain and I can't quite separate Electro from Megavolt and Darkwing Duck. What the <laughs> hell is this? <laughs> I mean, you got to watch the cartoon because it's really, it's fun. It'll stick in your head for, for years and years as evidenced by me. But yeah. he he's like an electrified villain that's very similar to Electro. And yeah. I, I just wanted to mention that because I, I can't stop laughing. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me just say this. Anyone listening to this, if you have any information on uh, freshman year, the Disney Plus show, please text me. 
Um, this show is so confusing. I have no idea where they're going with this. And I really just want to know what they're doing. That show is so interesting. Like the moment they announced it, I was really confused. The vibe that I got from his Civil War appearance and further on was that he was always kind of in the beginning of his career. So the idea that they can do an entire show about his career before his career. Yeah, you know, in Civil War, they say uh, it had been six months. So freshman year would be the six months before Six Civil months War, in between. And I suppose the six months after Civil War leading into Homecoming. It's interesting. I I'm, yeah. No, 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 because there's only two months. There's two months between Civil really? War and Homecoming. So, th so oh, that's eight okay. months from when he's Spider-Man to Homecoming. Wacky. Interesting. He kind of, you know, just briefly mentions, too, that he was bitten by the spider in Civil War it's like it's kind of brushed off right bitten by the spider or whatever yeah, and then so. six months ago so that i wonder if it'll explore again the origin a little bit more in an episode well yeah and the biggest question that i always think of whenever i try to decide decipher what this show will be is who the villain's going to be because by all means we've kind of seen everyone that he's faced at one point or earlier even before we started this podcast i thought maybe they would try to tie in matt gargan from homecoming because i was like oh maybe they had met before but nope sure enough he had no idea who Matt Gargan was before Homecoming, so maybe they'll do Jackal. I think Jackal would be Who a fun is idea. Matt Gargan? What is this? Um, the Scorpion from. Do you um, guys think Scorpion's maybe. coming back for No Way Home? Will they ever follow up with that? I hope so. That's a lot of I villains. Mean, not in home, not in No Way Home, but I hope that in in his uh college trilogy i hope they bring him back because i think that he's a re i mean i don't remember his name off the top of my head but he's a really underrated actor he's mm -hmm. done a lot of good stuff so i would love to see them bring him back in a bigger role michael mando is that it yes michael mando yes okay okay all right are we done with the spider boys i, I think, think so. so all right fantastic guys thank you all for coming thank you everyone for listening i think this was i had a lot of fun with this um let's go one more time around our cosmic circle round table please just let the listeners know your name anything you've been working on lately and where people can find you on social media hi i'm i'm isla i'm so happy to be here and talk to you guys i i'm on twitter at tulin writes and my next article is going to be about shadow and bone season two subscribe to the patreon for the cosmic circus if you can it helps keep the site running uh hi tucker you've been listening to me for the last two hours um just pay attention to the website i don't really have a social media presence definitely subscribe to the patreon support the website we have a lot of fun over on discord um i love chatting with the guys over there yeah this was a lot of fun i'm vin you can find me on twitter at vin writes words recently i haven't been working on any articles but I think I've, <laughs> I, I, I owe everyone a couple Spider-Man articles after this. Oh, yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And I always like wasting time with really crazy photoshops. It's what I like to do uh, <laughs> when I when I don't want to study. Yeah. Um, so so that's me. Alex was here. He had to leave earlier, but we really, really love Alex. Alex is one of the best guys on our site and hope you guys appreciated them too. So thanks again for everyone tuning in. Please don't forget to find us on Patreon. You can find all of our work and the work of our friends on thecosmiccircus.com, as well as on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, at mycosmiccircus. Please remember to rate and review the podcast, like, and subscribe. We'll see you after Christmas for our hockey wrap-up with Uday. Love you guys. Thank you so much. See you next time. we can do is like i can just give you my thoughts on it really quick mm -hmm. and like we can lizzie if you're listening to this add it in as if i'm in the conversation <laughs> hold on i'm gonna start this really quick so it makes so it makes it sound like i i'm in the actual conversation 
So I agree with Ayla. <laughs> Oh my god. Uh, I'm gonna okay, I'm gonna say this and this is going I want this to be quoted hold on. on my Alex, Alex, stone. hold on, hold on, hold on. I can play it now. Do you want me to play it? Yes, play it, please. Oh my Give god. Oh boy. Hold on one second. Just do me a favor and play it right about now. Oh no, no, not that, not that. What is it? This one? I think yeah, it's that one. This one? Okay. All right, Lizzie, please clean this up. Sorry. Love you. <laughs> what the hell is this? No, it's not this either. Uh, what is just, it? Just put, just put Spider-Man 3, that Peter walking down the road. <laughs> we know what it is. No, but like, Lizzie, anyway. Lizzie's uh, going to kill us. Yay. Yay. Good job, guys. It's a lot of fun.